You're listening to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. In this episode, we're going to chat about a very hot topic, SARS-CoV-2 in dogs and cats with our guest, Amanda Liu. Welcome to Veterinary Vertex. I'm Editor-in-Chief Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Sarah Wright. Today, we're really fortunate to have Amanda Liu with us. Amanda, thank you so much for being here today. No, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So your study in JAVMA characterizes the clinical and epidemiologic features of SARS-CoV-2 in dogs and cats in the U.S. What new information can our readers learn from your manuscript to better serve their patients and their clients? We developed the idea for this publication um, during a time when natural infections in animals were relatively new in the literature. Um, so we felt it was important to um, share this data globally in a timely way um, so we can help expand the knowledge of SARS-CoV-2 in companion animals. And at this point in time, um, case reports and surveillance studies in pets from different countries were starting to be published. But the focus of those publications was on how many animals were becoming infected. Um, but what was missing was uh, the data that captured information about how the interactions um, between people and animals led to pet infections, and also what infection looked like in these animals. Um, all of this is important to understand, uh, to, to help inform public health prevention measures, as well as addressing any animal health and welfare needs using um, a One Health approach to keep both people and animals living in the same household healthy. So in our study, um, we explored whether pets exposed to an owner with COVID-19 became sick um, and how long it takes for the exposed pet to become sick and also what SARS-CoV-2 illness looks like in pets. Um, this epidemiologic information had not been extensively investigated in previous studies. Um, but it's important for pet owners, uh, veterinarians, and health officials to guide decision-making. Um, we were able to analyze this information because of CDC's national surveillance system um, that many federal, state, and local partners have contributed data to. So we expect that our analyses will have clinical implications, especially when vets are um, planning the best course of action for prevention, diagnosis, or just aftercare in an infected animal. For example, um, when we looked at how long it took for an animal to become sick after being exposed, uh, we found a median of 10 days in cats and six in dogs. So in knowing the window of when a pet is likely to become sick after exposure can help vets with um, differential diagnoses to just minimize occupational risks and um, inform next steps, whether that entails further testing or isolation and quarantine of infected pets. So the main takeaway here um, is that pets are at risk of becoming infected with SARS-CoV-2 um, after exposure to a person with COVID-19. And pet owners should be aware of this risk and separate themselves um, from their pets accordingly if they're sick uh, so they can prevent spread across species which can lead to changes in the virus. Also, it's um, important to be aware that the risk of pets spreading SARS-CoV-2 to people is low. Um, however, future studies that utilize a One Health approach to look at human, animal, and environmental factors are needed. 
vets have an important role to play in helping to um, not only manage these infections in animals, but also to help us learn how the virus behaves in animals and how they might be involved in transmission. And recognizing the significance of um, the human-animal interface can inform better clinical case management and just improve overall care for animals and people. It's a very important manuscript. Thank you very much. And as veterinarians, you have such an important role to play too. You wear many hats, especially when it comes to public health. So really important information again. Thank you. So on the same topic, what are common misconceptions about SARS-CoV-2 and companion animals? And what's the role of veterinarians in addressing these misconceptions and educating their clients and the general public? So looking back to February of 2020, um, the virus was identified in an animal for the first time um, when a dog in Hong Kong tested positive after being exposed to its positive owner. And this discovery sparked a lot of fear and confusion um, because not only was this the first report of SARS-CoV-2 in an animal, but also at this point, there was still so much um, that we didn't know about the infection in humans. So to think about it in animals created a whole nother layer of concern. Um, no one knew how the virus would affect pets, and more importantly, if pets could infect people or other animals. Um, these concerns resulted in reports in some countries of pet owners actually abandoning their pets um, out of worry that they could get COVID-19 from um, the family cat or dog. So we knew it was urgent um, to learn more, uh, to address both public health and animal health concerns, um, along with any welfare needs. And if we fast forward to the present day, um, we now know a lot more about the virus in people as well as in animals, including pets, zoo animals, and wildlife. Um, for example, we know that the risk of people getting infected um, with SARS-CoV-2 for most animals is low. And we also know that pets do not carry or spread infectious virus on their skin and fur. Um, but we're still learning about how it affects animals. And as a result, um, many people are still unaware that this is even a potential issue. Um, vets are at the front lines in communities protecting public health and animal health. Um, so the role of a vet should be twofold. Um, they're not only responsible for treating the animal's illness, but also communicating with families about the disease. Um, this is especially pertinent in public health emergencies when misinformation can spread rapidly. Um, so it's important for veterinarians to stay informed with the latest science so they can provide updated guidance um, for clients to better care for themselves, other people in their homes, and of course, their pets. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of misconception. I think uh, it's still, as you said, I think this is going to be a really important podcast for medical doctors, public health officials, uh, as well as veterinarians to listen to. So thank you again. What inspired you, Amanda, to write this manuscript? That's a great question. Um, when we first started collecting data for this paper, um, the initial motivation was to just share all the data that we were actively gathering throughout the United States. Our surveillance systems um, collected data on people and pets that could help inform the global knowledge on this emerging infectious disease. So this prompted us to take a more focused approach to address two pressing questions. First, how SARS-CoV-2 affects animals, and second, 
um, how humans and pets might be linked in the context of disease transmission. Both of these questions are important for um, addressing the public health and animal health concerns that were raised at the beginning of the pandemic. Our findings started out as um, just informally tracking illness reports in animals, but we quickly realized that as an increasing number of um, animal cases were being reported globally, um, we needed to set up a more formal uh, surveillance system to collect standardized information um, so we can better understand the role of pets in spreading the virus. So we shifted everything to an online platform that allowed for collaborative data sharing among partners. Um, we're very grateful to our local, state, and federal partners for their collaboration um, in, in providing data through the surveillance system that really allowed us to summarize what we've learned and also apply this knowledge to help protect people and pets as well as other animals. Perfect. Well, you teed up my next question perfectly for me. These are tough things to do to foster that type of collaboration. How, how did you manage that? What tips do you have for other people trying to do highly collaborative studies? Thanks for this question. I um, I love being able to highlight just how much teamwork was involved um, in this paper and also recognize everyone's contributions. Um, so with any collaborative project, uh, extensive coordination, of course, is needed. And for our project, that coordination was critical. Um, it involved using a One Health approach and working across multiple sectors. Um, we are so lucky uh, because we have the best One Health partners and we all work really well together. Um, this topic touched the professional interests and uh, the personal concerns of so many people. So we were able to quickly build extensive collaboration among state and federal public health and animal health officials, along with diagnostic laboratories and also academic researchers who were interested in participating. Um, as you'll see in our paper, we had a total of over 50 partners from different organizations and geographic areas. Um, they all played essential roles, whether it was conducting detailed case investigations into people and animals, um, or surveillance studies, testing and validating samples, or just overall organization of efforts across all the involved sectors. Um, and luckily for us, uh, we've collaborated on other projects before. So our great working relationships um, transcended this project. I personally am very grateful that I could be a part of this um, whole One Health effort because this paper would not have been possible without um, everyone's valuable input and consistent support throughout the whole process. Sounds like it truly was a collaborative effort. This is a little off script, but it's such an important topic. What made you want to submit this manuscript to JAPMA? I think, um, you know, we especially wanted to reach vets, um, given that there's a, you know, clinical implications. Um, and a lot of the partners that we work with um, have veterinary uh, backgrounds. So we only felt it was appropriate um, to submit to JAPMA. Um, and also, I just want to say thank you both for making the whole submission process so easy. Um, but yeah, we felt that this was the most appropriate um, outlet to get this work out there. That's great to hear. We're always trying to streamline the process for our authors and also to make it easy too for our reviewers as well. So thank you very much for your contribution to JAFMA. We appreciate it. So you're very unique in that you have a master's degree in public health. How did your training prepare you to write this manuscript? 
So data visualization um, was a huge component of this manuscript because one of our main priorities was to um, summarize our analyses through informative figures that um, could be easily interpreted without much statistical background or, or knowledge. Um, so I've got to credit my coursework um, during my graduate studies for that uh, data visualization skill set. But I would have to say that the um, most valuable and applicable takeaway from my training is actually the work experience that I had access to um, throughout the degree program. Not many MPH programs provide exposure to um, the concept of the One Health framework, which acknowledges the connection between people, animal, um, pets um, in the context of our shared environment. And I had been fascinated by One Health since I took several conservation classes um, in undergrad. And through my MPH in um, global environmental health, I was exposed to a zoonotic infectious disease component that just really captivated me. Um, so I started seeking out ways to work in One Health and was very fortunate to um, receive the opportunity to work in CDC's One Health office as a student researcher um, after the first year of my program. And it's been such a great experience with amazing people, which explains why I have continued to work here um, since graduating. So what started off as just an internship position became a long-term job. Um, so I feel very privileged that I've had a home in, in the One Health office for the past four years. It's really allowed me to grow um, and expand my skills in a positive setting. So while this manuscript was very involved um, undertaking, it didn't feel all that daunting. Um, having a familiar workplace environment, along with a team of incredibly supportive coworkers, provided a different kind of training that was just as helpful and relevant as any class could be. That's awesome to hear. It really helps when you have a great team because everything is a team effort. So very good. Cool. So our next question is very important for our listeners. If a veterinarian is about to meet a client, what is the one piece of information they should know about SARS-CoV-2 in dogs and cats? I can summarize the most important things about SARS-CoV-2 in pets in three main points. Um, first, people can spread SARS-CoV-2 to pets and other mammals um, especially during close contact, but the risk of the opposite um, of pets spreading the virus to people is low. Second, uh, pets infected with SARS-CoV-2 may or may not get sick, but if they do get sick, most experience a mild respiratory illness and fully recover. Um, serious illness is rare, but it has happened in pets with um, underlying illnesses. And finally, um, owners who have either suspected or confirmed COVID-19, should avoid contact with pets and other animals while they're isolating, um, just as they would if they were quarantining from people. And these three points address the main concerns that a vet should share with pet owners. CDC has extensive information for pet owners, veterinarians, and others at our Healthy Pets, Healthy People website, um, which you can find at cdc.gov forward slash healthy pets. Um, I'm also going to throw our social media account out there. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at CDC underscore N-C-E-Z-I-D. Outstanding. I, I think those are three really, really good take-home points, and we get asked them every day still to this day. Uh, so thank you for sharing all that. Uh, as you start to wind up, we ask a little bit more of an interesting personal question. So 
what is the oldest or the most interesting thing in Amanda Lou's desk drawer? I love this question, and I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to answer it. Um, so on my desk, there is a life-size figurine of a baby Gila monster. Um, it was purchased from a gift store at the Phoenix Desert Museum. Um, when I was an undergrad, I was in a herpetology lab. And one summer, our group um, traveled to New Mexico for a conference. We rented a van and road trip through the desert trying to see as many animals as possible. Um, and the Gila monster was at the top of our must-see list. Um, we weren't having much luck finding one <laughs> or any living creatures for that matter. Um, so when I came across this in, in a gift store, I felt it was necessary to add it to our little exploration. Um, and one day when we were out in the field, um, I hid it behind some rocks and we managed to successfully trick our advisor um, into thinking it was a real Gila monster. Um, it's a silly memory that uh, we still laugh about to this day. So it's nice to have um, this little desktop reminder of a very fun and memorable adventure that we shared. What a great story. I always wondered who bought those things in gift stores. Now I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the word grit, Amanda, we hear commonly now and you need grit to be successful and clearly you have it. Where do you think your grit came from? I've done some professional discovery throughout my schooling um, and now in my career, and I've been incredibly fortunate that um, I've had opportunities to test out different fields and develop valuable skill sets um, from working in a research lab at the zoo uh, to having several clinical research opportunities, working with human patients, um, and now getting to explore the animal health side of, of public health. I've really had to learn to adapt in these different situations and work outside of my comfort zone. Um, so while all of this has required a lot of determination and hard work, I absolutely have to give credit to the people in my life um, for supporting me as I've tried to navigate through all of this. Um, I've had wonderful mentors and coworkers along the way. So if I have to attribute my grit um, to, to a source, it would be the people who have helped me learn and grow through everything. I'm a big herbs person myself. And actually, I don't know if you can see. Oh, you can. Look at that. This is a nose print from a fly river turtle um, oh, from one awesome. of my fellowships. Yeah. <laughs> the best thing that I've seen today. <laughs> I know. She's really cute. Her name is Piku. She's adorable. So, <laughs> But we can talk more about herbs offline. But thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate you, Amanda. And we also, like I said, appreciate your contribution to JAVMA too. It's awesome having this manuscript available for our readers. And I think it's made a really great impact too on social media. And I was chatting with you a little bit already about the success that it's had. So thank you very much. No, thank you so much for um, letting me join you today. This paper was an incredible opportunity uh, to be a part of. So I'm glad I could uh, talk about it with you guys. To our listeners, you can read Amanda's manuscript in January, 2023, print JAVMA or on our journal website, I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you soon.